You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Will Mavity's interview with the director for Welcome to Chechnya, David France, and the visual effects supervisor, Ryan Lady. Мы начали получать первые сообщения из Чечни о том, что в Чечне происходит массовое задержание геев. Мы можем поехать в поедет с нами чувак, доедет до какой-нибудь с нами станции, как только я вышел с метро, перезакрылись, и больше ты в России не был. I wanted to ask you about the alleged abduction and torture of gay men in the Republic. Это ерунда. У нас таких людей нету. И практически сразу было решение принято о том, чтобы людей спасать, эвакуировать. У нас не было такого опыта. Нужно же людей скрывать, нужно их искать им визы, какие-то пути, тайные вывоза из страны. Бегом, бегом, бегом. Не будут искать. Я это прекрасно все знаю. Я не буду делать все, чтобы это никогда не всплыло. Изменить ситуацию может только человек, который прошел эти пытки и заявит об этом публично. You're listening to an episode of the Next Best Picture podcast. I have with me the director of Welcome to Chechnya, David France, and its visual effects supervisor, Ryan Laney. So thank you guys both for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so this is obviously uh, a groundbreaking doc for a variety of reasons. You're certainly the first time a doc has ever even been in the conversation for best visual effects. David, was this always the plan to go with these virtual faces or did you kind of come up with this along the way of making this doc? Well, the plan was always to treat their faces. These are of LGBTQ people who are survivors of uh, a genocide in Chechnya in the south of Russia. Uh, whose lives are continually endangered. Um, uh, so they couldn't appear in the film with our own faces, but I asked them to let me shoot them anyway, and then uh, begin some investigation into a, a way through uh, visual effects to cover their identities, but not their humanity. And that that was the kind of the, the high bar that we set that we just kind of made up. We had no idea how to do it. I'd never worked in the area of visual effects before. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I went to the to the toolbox that documentary filmmakers had used in the past. And and you know what's in that box. We all do, right? There's the black right. ball. There's the, the blurry oval. There's the pixelization. Um, and very little else. We played with, mm-hmm. um, you know, that Snapchat stuff. We... Um, <laughs> We put, we put glasses on people and masks. We had a whole iconography of masks that we had tried to create, like the the um, Ninja Turtle mask and the stagecoach robber mask. And we thought if we did different masks for different people that that would work, but it wasn't working. It just didn't work. Um, so um, 
when we were kind of trying this on our own, um, and then we began to reach out um, deeper into the, the world of, of, of people with great experience in visual effects, asking them what they thought we could do. Um, we, we were pretty confident that the economics would prohibit much of the magic that we know that people are capable of doing. We see it in the Irishman. We've seen it in so many places where, where face swaps are, you know, are, are, are being exercised and being used. And, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until we, we met Ryan that we found somebody who was um, kind of crazy as, as we were about wanting to try to find a way to do this. And, um, and he had already been thinking about some approaches in this, in this area as somebody who really keeps up on the academic literature, even about artificial intelligence and, and its uses. So he was, he, he was the perfect partner to start um, just feeling our way through this. And we went through multiple iterations before we came up with what we're calling this face double technique. And it was an interesting journey, but once, once Ryan presented footage where he'd actually put somebody else's face over the, the face of the person in the film, changing nothing about the way that, that they were talking or walking or the darting of the eyes were still darting. They were just somebody else's eyes and somebody else's mouth. And that's when we knew finally that we had an approach that would meet all the things that we wanted it to meet and that we would be able to finish this film. So Ryan, you were brought on, I guess, at well into the process. You guys had shot a lot of the footage and interviews at the point that you brought him in. Tell me about the difficulties of getting footage that was shot with low res cameras because you know they had to be stealthy with a lot of photography, murky lighting and no facial markers, obviously. Tell me about working under those circumstances. Yeah, it's pretty unusual for visual effects to have um, uh, this type of footage. Um, there's a lot of artifacts that make compositing hard, um, uh, block artifacts from JPEG compression and uh, a lot of grain from low light consumer cameras and uh, rolling shutter issues. And so there was there was a lot uh, that pl- actually played into our decisions on how we approached the solution. Um, we, we briefly looked at maybe a 3D tracking solution and realized that there were just too many complications with the footage that we, we, we couldn't promise a, a good result if we went down that road. Uh, and we, um, looking at uh, a deep machine learning uh, technique called style transfer, we had this idea that we could do it just from, from one picture to another picture by sort of painting over a new face, um, changing the sh- shape and color of eyebrows and eyes and lips, mm-hmm. lip shapes. Walk me through basically step by step of you. You brought in, as I understand, you brought in people who uh, were members of an LGBTQ activist organization and they volunteered to have their faces recorded. So explain that process to me a little bit. Well, let me talk a little bit about how we found the folks. And then we, 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 we brought them to Ryan and we had 23 faces that we needed to cover. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought a way to, this, this is a film about activism, about really um, courageous, heroic activism. Um, so I went to these activists who are mostly in New York, mostly activists, mostly uh, LGBT themselves, uh, and said, would you 
you know, take on some risk by lending your face as a shield to, uh, to, um, to lessen the perils for the people who want to be able to narrate their story, who want to be able to tell the world what happened to them, to show the consequences of this kind of horror. Um, and universally, they, they said, yes, they would be happy to do it. And, um, and then we had to find the, match the face of these New York activists Mm-hmm. with the proper person in the film. And that's something that we worked with Ryan on because he's, he's, he, he worked with the photographs that we found off of Instagram, for example, and just tried to stretch those faces together and see what, where those matches were. And so that's how we did the casting. And once we did the casting, then it was all in Ryan's hands. So Ryan, they, they give them over to you and then tell me what you did from there kind of. Yeah, um, part of the casting process was matching um, uh, kind of like by body type, uh, and that worked out pretty well. And once um, once we had a list of our pairs between the 23 people in the film and the 23 activists who were going to uh, cover them, uh, avail them, um, we booked uh, a week of a studio in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, Johnny Hahn is the um, uh, produced that end of the project and was able to bring together a, a, a proper team. Uh, it's a regular, it was a blue screen. It was similar to what we're in front of now, but mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, part of that process was trying to uh, find from the film and then recreate all the lighting scenarios that we were gonna have to deal with. Um, where um, in a interview situation, you might have one or two lighting setups that you needed to produce. But for this, we had everything from broad daylight uh, with sharp shadows, uh, overcast, you know, exterior seating where there's side lot lit that's bright, um, interior night in dark of night with underlit from uh, cars, car light headlights. So we there were there were a lot there was a lot of variation in lighting that we wanted to for the process of machine learning get close to picture to match the film. So we went through, um, uh, Piers Dennis actually went through the entire film shot by shot and picked out um, uh, what we needed to represent so that we could sum it down into a very short period of time to capture all the data. And you did that in a week? You were able to shoot all those different lighting setups in a week basically to replicate that on the model faces? Yeah, it was it was a strategic um, application of time. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, Ray Huang did the um, was a DOP, and he uh, prepared this idea that we would start with the brightest lights and then remove rigging as the mm. week went on, so that that the uh, the first day would be the hardest um, with the most amount of heavy equipment, and then we would, things would get easier as we went along, and that worked out really well. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. 
We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. So you guys only had a 2.2 mil for your budget total in this project. It would make you uh, certainly the lowest budget VFX nominee in at least 40 years and maybe adjusted for inflation, the lowest budget VFX nominee ever. So um, tell me a little bit about making this look so good despite those constraints. Well, I mean, we, we really worked to the requirements and the requirements were um, these people's lives were in danger and we needed to cover them um, so good that their parents wouldn't recognize them. That was David's first sort of like bar that he gave us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought it was a hypothetical, but we were still working to it. And then when we learned more about the project um, in the second conversation, we understood that it was it was uh, really important um, that the identity preservation was the really important part of this. And so um, compared to um, the brilliant work in The Irishman or any other face replacement in a visual effects project. Um, this is not to that standard for face replacement, but it is to that standard for things like compositing and grain matching and um, all those complications of those, the, 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 the blocking artifacts from JPEG compression. We had to put that back in on top of our work. Okay. <laughs> so, um, uh, so there was, there was a lot in, um, uh, making it good work, even if it, the constraints meant that we we couldn't do a full 3D pipeline like a like a bigger show could. One thing you did pull off uh, that I was impressed by is you avoided the the Polar Express dead eye effect. I mean, the eyes are actually pretty expressive. So tell me a little bit about making sure that I wasn't staring at an android, basically. Yeah, I mean, we went. Uh, uh, we, uh, there was actually a study at Dartmouth College to make sure that we got that right. Um, and the um, capturing the way we captured data, we made sure that we had eye movements there. And the machine learning process does a, an incredible job at matching the original expression underneath. So, so it is prosthetic uh, on top of the subjects in the film versus a new, like a new face. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Polar Express was. Um, um, uh, pretty pioneering project at its time. Uh, and it, it, uh, it showed us sort of some gaps in the 3D pipeline. Um, and, and one of those is, is really how important uh, eye movement is. And, and uh, we didn't, there wasn't any part of the process that we really allowed direction for this image transfer. Um, the, the data, uh, the pictures that were pulled from the data set, the, the data capture session that we shot, um, um, were all machine best fit. And the deep machine learning process was all um, based on uh, the best that those best fit of pictures coming in, how well they fit and uh, were massaged into place by the machine learning process. So so we really feel like it's an authentic representation of what was there. And so if the eyes were um, alive, uh, it's because the original subjects that 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 motion translated very, 
directly. And a lot of that had to do with the lighting too. I mean, we, we recognized from our first test, which hadn't been done in a lighting controlled situation, that, um, that you really needed to, to see the light move across a person's eyes in the mm. same direction that it was moving across the room. And, um, and the, the machine found that and was able to replicate that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, thank God it worked because that would have, you know, it really brings home the emotion. Um, two specific scenes before we go, I want to ask about one, uh, there's a scene where one of the digitally uh, mapped people cries. And I was curious about that, if the tears presented an issue. This was, uh, again, it was, it was um, uh, Johnny Hahn directed talent on set to get, um, he actually just first asked the person on set to act, uh, imagine that he was sad. Um, and so that um, welling was um, a, a, a person imagining that they were sad and this machine, deep machine learning pairing of images and then altering them to feel more like the the source image. That yeah. didn't sound great, but uh, <laughs> it's a combination of uh, good good data capture and uh, this uh, process which pairs the images. So uh, again, we didn't we didn't David didn't direct that and say make it look more sad. It was it was it was really just um, uh, how how can we best uh, we stumbled on this mechanism that does a really good job at trans translating all of the underlying emotion, all the underlying expressions, every micro expression is, comes through pretty, pretty faithfully. And everybody who volunteered for us was asked to give sad and happy and surprised and, you know, so that that data would exist mm -hmm. and, and, and give the machine something to work with. We also, and Ryan didn't mention this, everyone had to move their mouths in the ways that Russian language requires you to move your mouth. Oh yeah, that's interesting. So they they um, were fed a, a pangram, which is a kind of a nonsensical sentence of words, gibberish, that moved the mouth in all the Russian ways. And so that we just would ask all the activists with a coach, a language coach, to just say that sentence over and over and over to say while well, they're turning their heads to say, you know, to give that data so that mm -hmm. the, this software that Ryan um, created would have something to find to, to match to the underlying action. Oh, that's wild. I hadn't even thought about that. And then the last scene I was curious about is there's a big moment in the film in which one of the real life figures is revealed. So, Tell me a little bit about the decision to handle that scene in that way, having his digital prosthetic melt off, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we, in the course of filming, uh, the person who we knew initially as Grisha elected to come forward and bring criminal charges against his captors, government officials uh, running this genocide. The first person to do it, um, an act of incredible courage and bravery and selflessness uh, to do this. It's, mm -hmm. It was stunning to watch this happen. Obviously, I watched it without the false um, disguise. Um, and uh, uh, so we knew that when he goes public like that, there's that moment where he's no longer Grisha, the name that he was using 
in the underground uh, network of safe houses. He is given back his real name. He's introduced as Maxim Lapunov. And suddenly we know, we really know who he is. And that was the moment where we knew it was time to give him back his face. You know, he had gone public um, and he had thrown off all of the strategies to, to hide. Um, and in as much as Ryan's VFX was a real character in the film, I mean, we say at the very beginning, they've been digitally altered if they're running for their lives. And we, we um, enhanced a little halo around the faces of the people who were fleeing so that you would have a sense that they had been disguised. It really mm. would put you at a little bit at ease thinking that um, we're not revealing too much about them, but also to telegraph the, this idea that, that, they ha that, they're, that they're in danger and that they, that they really can't show their faces. And so yeah. knowing that it was a, already a character in the film, it felt right to, to bring Grisha with, with that borrowed face right into that press conference and then to have it melt as it does there, which is Ryan's design for you know, how to dissolve it and how to, how to, how to give us Maxim Lapinov in real life, how to reflect his vulnerability and his courage at once. Well, guys, uh, this has to be the most interesting and exciting use of visual effects I've seen in any film this year. So um, I, I'm really wishing you both well at the Bake Off this weekend, and I hope you guys are nominated for visual effects because it's it's incredible work and it's it's so groundbreaking and so important. So thank you so much both for your time. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having us on. Thanks, thanks of for having course. us. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interview with the director for Welcome to Chechnya, David Franz, and the visual effects supervisor, Ryan Laney, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Welcome to Chechnya is currently shortlisted for the 93rd Academy Awards for Best Visual Effects and Best Documentary Feature, and can be currently streamed on HBO Max. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.